Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, December 2nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Global Conference in Solidarity with Palestine, which will take place in the Republic of South Africa starting tomorrow. A leading Palestinian academic was killed in Gaza just over the weekend. The Israeli Defense Forces has given more evacuation orders after the resumption of bombing in the Gaza Strip. And resistance forces are saying there will be no more releases of captives until the hostility is ended. In the second and third hours, we will listen to a panel discussion on developments over the last few days in Palestine. Uh, That is a podcast uh, from Electronic Intifada, one of the best sources of course, on the situation in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll continue uh, with our Um Kaltoum and her orchestra's film festival. This is a concert from 1959. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah.
هكذا غنت ام كلثوم اولى اغنيتها في هذا الحفل يلي كان يشجيك انيني من تاليف احمد رامي والحان رياض الصنباطي ايها الساده ان قلت ان غناءها كان جميلا لكن قولي فيه العجز بل وفيه التقصير وان قلت انه كان فنا رفيعا لما وفيت هذا الفن الرفيع حقه ابدا ولعل سيداتي سادتي هذه العاصفة من التصفيق التي استمعتم إليها كانت خير تعبير يستطيع الحاضرون هنا أن يستقبلوا به فن أم كلثوم وغناء أم كلثوم وحزبنا أن لنا لقاء آخر مع أم كلثوم وعودة ثانية إلى هذا المكان يلي كان يشجيك أنيني غنتها أم كلثوم بكلمة أحمد رامي وألحان رياض الصنباطي، وغدا لقاءات جدد في تمام الحادية عشرة مساء وكوكب الشرق أم كلثوم. إذاعة الأغاني من القاهرة. Welcome back. And that was uh, Um Kaltum and her orchestra, Egyptian classical music. Uh, and of course, if you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, December 2nd, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire The fifth global convention of solidarity with Palestine is set to get underway in Johannesburg, South Africa. The event, uh, which commemorates the 10th anniversary of the passing of Nelson Mandela, is titled Nelson Mandela and Palestine, Confronting Racism to Liberation. It is being organized by the Global Campaign to Return to Palestine in cooperation with the family of Mandela, who was South Africa's first democratic president following the fall of apartheid. The convention uh, from the 3rd through the 5th will bring together more than 150 international delegates from over 72 countries, including officials from the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas. According to a press statement by the group uh, Africa for Palestine, participants will provide important briefings to representatives of political parties, civil society groups, and the Palestine solidarity movement on the current Israeli onslaught on the Gaza Strip. On its website, the event organizers quote Mandela, who said, quote, we know very well that our freedom will not be complete until Palestine is liberated, end quote. Quote, hence the fall of apartheid regime in South Africa was considered an important achievement for the liberation movements around the world and for liberation struggles in particular, the organizers stated. The convention will culminate in a much in a march uh, to uh, the Union Building, the official seat of the South African government uh, in Johannesburg. Uh, that will take place this coming Tuesday. In other news, in 2021, Professor Sufiane Taye was classified as one of 2% of the best researchers in the world, according to the Cuds News Network. Professor Sufiane Taye along with his whole family, was killed in renewed Israeli attacks on the Strip uh, earlier today, the Palestinian Higher Education Ministry has stated. Professor Taye 
was a prominent Palestinian scientist and the president of the Islamic University of Gaza, the Strip's leading academic institution. The Palestinian scientist is not the first educator or academic to be killed in Israeli attacks since October the 7th. His killing, however, has sent shockwaves across the academic community throughout the region. The accomplished scientist and beloved family man was a leading researcher in physics and applied mathematics. In 2021, he was classified as one of 2% of the best researchers in the world, according to the Quds News Network. Indeed, Taye's research has been recognized internationally, including by the United Nations Educational Scientific and Cultural Organization. According to Human Rights Watch, more than 183 Palestinian teachers have been killed by the Israelis since October the 7th. About 300 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli airstrikes across various areas of Gaza since Friday morning, as Israel resumed its aggression after a seven-day truce, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. A four-day truce, which began on Friday, November the 24th, was extended twice and collapsed on Friday, December 1st at 7 a.m. local time. Since October 7th, over 15,207 Palestinians including over 6,200 children and more than 4,000 women were killed, with another 40,652 wounded, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. A number of people forced to leave Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza have subsequently been arrested by Israeli troops. Samira sits in the candlelight of a house in Magazi, refugee camp, central Gaza. A mother of five sons and two daughters, she and her family had lived in the northern Gaza area of Jabalia. When Jabalia came under a major Israeli attack in recent weeks, the family were forced to leave their home. The bombing was both terrifying and chaotic, Samira said. The targeting seemed random, with Israeli occupation bombing homes with people still inside them. We never intended to leave our homes, but when the occupation bombed our neighbor's house and our house suffered severe damage, we had no choice but to move. The situation in Jabalia was disastrous, she said. We lacked electricity, water, and cooking gas, and we were completely cut off from communications and the Internet. Samira left Jabalia along with her husband, two sons, a daughter-in-law, and her three-year-old grandson, Adam. They initially traveled by car, then by donkey and cart, and then on foot until they reached Nasserin, formerly one of Israel's settlements in Gaza. The Israeli forces now waging a genocidal war have set up a checkpoint there. There was a large number of people in a state of panic, Samira said. The occupation had tanks surrounding us, and the soldiers were aiming their guns at us. The soldiers hurled insults at us. The language they used was offensive scene was extremely distressing. I saw bodies along the road, Wassam Samira's daughter-in-law said. The smell was very bad. We saw the belongings of displaced people, bags, mattresses, and blankets thrown on the road. The occupation had forced people to leave their belongings behind. Before setting out on their journey, Wissam's husband, Mohammed, had told her to remain alongside him at all times feeling that would provide a degree of safety. Unfortunately, the occupation soldiers arrested Muhammad, with some has said. 
When a soldier took Muhammad into detention, I was overcome with terror, Wissam said. I nearly lost consciousness. As Muhammad was taken away by the Israeli forces, Wissam held their son, Adam, in her arms. Muhammad urged me not to cry. Even when the urge was overwhelming, Wissam said, I couldn't express how I felt as I was afraid that the Israeli soldiers might shoot me or my son. Wissam spoke of how I saw young Palestinians being arrested by the occupation forces without any apparent reason. They were forced to strip. Muhammad's detention is exacerbating the family's problems. I cannot find the words to describe how I felt when I heard my son had been arrested, Samir said. I keep asking myself uh, questions about him. Is he afraid? Is he able to find any warmth now that the weather is cold? Many other men have been arrested by the Israelis as they moved south with their families. Samira tried to help a woman whose husband was arrested. The woman had two infants. I carried her youngest son on her backpack, said Samira. The woman just collapsed. She was crying bitterly. And you can read uh, these uh, articles in their entirety by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. And finally, a Hamas official uh, told Al Jazeera, negotiations on prison exchanges are now over and will not resume until Israel halts its attack and hands over all Palestinian prisoners. Israel ordered its Mossad negotiating team in Doha to return to Israel because of what it calls an impasse. Israel renews its bombardment of Gaza, hitting areas across the enclave after the end of a week-long truce. At least 15,207 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. In Israel, the official death toll stands at about 1,200. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, I would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, Worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. Go to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. You're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back later with more of our program for this week. Yes, I've been around for a 
Detroit's own uh, Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled No One to Blame. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast on this Saturday evening, December 2nd, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we're going to go to our panel discussion from Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the primary sources uh, for information on the Palestinian question in this period of extreme crisis. Uh, This is uh, recorded on day 55 of the siege on Gaza. Uh, Let's listen in. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for 30, uh, Thursday, November 30th. Uh, apologies for the uh, slight delay in starting. We were um, just uh, very overjoyed to have Rifat Alarir uh, join us, and we were just giving him warm greetings backstage. Um, so uh, thanks for bearing with us. Um, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. Thank you all for joining us. It's day 55, and at the last minute before the six-day truce was about to expire early this morning in Palestine, it was extended for another 24 hours. Al Jazeera is reporting that there are talks underway with Egyptian and Qatari mediators now to extend it another two days. We'll have a, a lot more on the current situation in Palestine and what comes next for Gaza on today's show with our guests and friends, Rifat Alarir and Tarek Lubani, so please stay tuned. But first, we go to Ali for his opening remarks. Ali. Thanks, Nora. The International Council of the Auschwitz Museum earlier this month issued a statement uh, supporting Israel's genocide in the Gaza Strip under the banner of self-defense. This uh, grotesque move by an organization whose alleged mission is to warn against indifference to the kinds of atrocities perpetrated by the Nazis at the infamous Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp came on 18 of November. This was after weeks of merciless Israeli bombing, which had by that time killed more than 13,000 Palestinians, including 5,500 children. According to the New York Times, no friend of the Palestinian people. The pace of Israel's killing of civilians in Gaza, quote, has very few precedents in this century, end quote. To find a historical comparison for so many large bombs in such a small area, we, quote, may have to go back to Vietnam or the Second World War. Mark Galasco, a military advisor for the Dutch organization PAX, and a former senior intelligence analyst at the Pentagon told the Times. And yet the official guardians of the memory of the estimated 1.1 million people murdered at Auschwitz are not flinching. Now I quote from their statement. Threatened in its existence, the state of Israel has the right to self-defense in accordance with international law and the principles of humanitarianism, the Auschwitz 
International Council said. The existence of a free, sovereign, and democratic Jewish state is one of the pillars of world peace, it asserted, dropping any pretense of political neutrality. Despite the lip service to international law, the Auschwitz International Council gave its full-throated endorsement to Israel's barbaric assault on Gaza. The unimaginable hatred and violence perpetrated by terrorists only results in extensive and more widespread suffering also affecting the civilian population in Gaza whom Hamas exploits as human shields. The Auschwitz Council added, repeating a lie whose intention is to blame Palestinians for their own deaths and absolve Israel of their systematic murder. As justification for Israel's supposed self-defense against a refugee population it has displaced, occupied, besieged, murdered, and terrorized for decades, the Auschwitz statement repeats unverified and debunked Israeli claims that on October 7, quote, innocent people, excuse me, innocent victims were tortured, raped, taken hostage, and murdered by Hamas terrorists. Israel has been unable to substantiate its inflammatory accusations that have fueled the genocide. Even in its screenings of supposedly damning evidence of such atrocities to hand-picked friendly journalists such as The Guardian's Owen Jones. Uh, now a quote from Owen Jones, quote, If living people were beheaded, we're not shown that in any of the footage. If there was torture too, there's no evidence given for that on camera. Now, if there was rape and sexual violence committed, we don't see this on the footage either, Jones said after attending a screening of a documentary on so-called Hamas atrocities organized by the Israeli military. We don't see children being killed, Jones added, after viewing what is presumably the most powerful evidence Israel has been able to muster. There is, meanwhile, a growing body of testimony and evidence that a significant, though as yet undetermined, number of the Israelis who died on or after the 7th of October were actually killed by their own military or police forces who reacted with massive and panicked indiscriminate fire. This evidence has been ignored by world leaders and international officials, including UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who continue to parrot the Israeli version of events without calling for any sort of independent inquiry. We learned from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum that atrocity propaganda of the kind Israel has been spewing since the 7th of October, for example, the debunked tale of dozens of beheaded Jewish babies, played a key role in facilitating the German-led European Holocaust of European Jews. Now, I quote from the uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum. This is the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Propaganda campaigns created an atmosphere tolerant of violence against Jews. Propaganda also encouraged passivity and acceptance of the impending measures against Jews, as these appeared to depict the Nazi government as stepping in and restoring order, end quote. That is precisely what Israel's atrocity tales are designed to do, and it has worked effectively by lining up Western media and governments 
in support of Israel's genocidal war. The Auschwitz Council statement came just two days after three dozen independent UN experts admonished world governments for the failure of the international system to mobilize to prevent genocide by Israel in Gaza. The UN experts expressed alarm over, quote, discernibly genocidal and dehumanizing rhetoric coming from senior Israeli government officials, as well as some professional groups and public figures calling for the total destruction and erasure of Gaza, the need to finish them all and force Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem into Jordan. End quote. The UN experts added that Israel, quote, has demonstrated it has the military capacity to implement such criminal intentions. Two weeks earlier, a group of independent UN experts had also warned that, quote, the Palestinian people are at grave risk of genocide and that time is running out to prevent genocide and humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, end quote. On 13 October, just days after the events Israel has used to justify its extermination campaign in Gaza, Raz Sigal, an Israeli professor of Holocaust and genocide studies at Stockton University, called Israel's assault a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes. The same day, Palestinian human rights groups called on world governments to, quote, urgently intervene to protect the Palestinian people against genocide. They too cited the genocidal statements of Israeli leaders, including Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who said on the 9th of October, quote, we are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly, end quote. And that is exactly what Israel did with the predictable and clearly intended genocidal results. Millions of civilians are being collectively punished in full view of the world. There can be no justification for using starvation as a weapon of war. UK-based charity Oxfam said in late October, starvation, of course, deliberately used is a severe war crime. During the temporary truce of recent days, a UN official described seeing emaciated adults and children desperate for food and water. You can see the children are getting thinner and they haven't eaten for a while, UNICEF's James Elder told Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, the World Health Organization warned that more people would soon start dying in Gaza from disease than from bombardment. The European Union, which funds the Auschwitz Museum and Memorial, asserts that the purpose of Holocaust education is to promote respect for tolerance, democracy, and human rights. Holocaust education, quote, can point to the responsibility of those who closed their eyes to discrimination against minorities and those who turned their heads when atrocities were perpetrated, end quote, according to one European Parliament document. But if anything, Holocaust education seems to be having the opposite, opposite effect, providing justification for new atrocities against new victims. For years, Israel has been sending teenagers on junkets to Auschwitz, 
often just before they join the army. But these death camp visits were, according to one analysis published in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper in 2016, quote, creating a generation of xenophobes obsessed with the notion of Jewish might, but largely blind to the Holocaust universal lessons, end quote. The main message I got from the trip was that it's important to serve in the army and defend the country. I just didn't connect to that. I thought it was propaganda, one Israeli officer told the newspaper. Undoubtedly, many of the Israeli personnel dropping bombs on hospitals and apartments in Gaza in recent weeks visited Auschwitz, where they heard the message, never again, and then went home more ready than ever to do it again, this time to Palestinians. That the Auschwitz Council is willing to lend its presumed moral authority to a new genocide is ironic beyond words and simply repugnant. But it is not surprising. One of the council's members is Danny Dayan, the former Israeli consul general in New York, and the former leader of the council representing Israel's illegal Jewish settler colonies in the occupied West Bank. Dayan has stated openly that the true meaning of never again is that world leaders should provide unconditional support to Israel as it slaughters Palestinians. Another council member is Ronald Lauder, also a backer of the genocide in Gaza and a pro-Israel billionaire who uses his wealth to blackmail institutions that refuse to muzzle Palestinians and their supporters. For decades, Israel and its lobby have weaponized the memories of the Jews murdered by the German government and its European partners during World War II to justify their crimes against the Palestinian people. Having captured Auschwitz symbolically, if not militarily, Israel is now using it just as it is using the schools and hospitals, its army devastated and captured in Gaza as a base for its ongoing extermination of the Palestinian people. Hale Abunima, thank you so much. Um, and uh, your remarks today are going to be published, um, so uh, everyone should stay tuned. For that, it will be up on electronicintifada.net shortly after this live stream. Thank you so much, Ali. Well, I don't have the words to express how happy and relieved we are right now to have our good friend Rifat Alarir with us live from the Gaza Strip, uh, looking handsome and healthy. Um, and uh, the smile is something that we've been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to see again. So uh, Rifat, our good friend, and, and our pretty much de facto editor in the Gaza Strip, um, thank you so much for being with us today. Alhamdulillah, salam, to you and your family. And I, I don't know if Roger Waters is watching today, but I, I don't want him to be offended by this, but having you on, this is bigger than Roger Waters. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll think of a career shift. Maybe I, I, I think something. But you need to, you know, like clearly you know, close your ears. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, 
Rifat, where do we even start? Um, how how are you? How are your kids? How are your uh, how's your wife? How's your family right now? Uh, we are fine. Uh, struggling like uh, everybody else in in Gaza, especially in the Gaza city and uh, the the north, with uh, barely any food, um, water sources. Everything running out. Even the aid that made its uh, its way into Gaza is not enough for uh, my extended family, perhaps uh, to, to to eat in, in in a week. And most of it, I took a footage of some of the trucks. By the way, they're not trucks. They're probably half trucks or a quarter mm. of of a truck, and mostly uh, water bottles. Uh, probably every ten. What we need is electricity, fuel, cooking gas, and uh, a flour. These are the four priorities. Yeah. Uh, and we barely had any, 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 any of these. Uh, and many people will not be getting any of this or, because there are too many people. The Gaza municipality estimates that there are about 800,000 uh, Palestinians in Gaza city. And in in the north, in in Jabalia, Beit Lahia, uh, and Beit uh, Beit Hamid, that's too many people with uh, too uh, few uh, resources. Or family-wise, I haven't seen my kids since the truce started. Uh, they moved to another place, and I'm spending most of the time time running uh, uh, to places uh, with internet connection, so I can uh, be online. Uh, but they are they are good. Uh, yesterday, only yesterday, we made it to our place where we live in Tel Hawa. And I posted a video. It's complete and utter destruction. Uh, I'm not sure how this is going uh, to to end. But with what we have now, it's complete and utter destruction. Again, I keep citing the World War Two. Uh, as a reference, the destruction we see in pictures is happening right in front of our eyes. Uh, uh, it looks like there was a power outage. Yeah, uh, that, that we hope we're going to try and get Rifat back. Uh, this is the the reality of trying to connect with people in Gaza. We obviously want to try to do so as much as possible and um we were lucky to have have the fight at all we're going to try and get him back but yeah. we're looking now at over the past few days of the truce he has posted uh videos from different parts of gaza city that he's been able to travel to and he has said uh, as i think he mentioned just before he cut out that the only thing he can compare the scale of the destruction to is World War Two, and that's you know what he's seeing on the ground. But it's also what, uh, as I said in in my commentary, uh, so-called experts cited in the New York Times are saying is that you have to go back to Vietnam or the Second World War to find the kind of intensity of bombing that Israel carried out uh, in such a short time and such a level of death and, and destruction. Uh, so that's, 
you know, and that's for those who are, use X, formerly Twitter, uh, you should be following Rifat. He is, uh, you can see his account there on the screen, at itranslate123. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever he's able to, uh, whenever he is able to get internet, he posts incredibly uh, important and valuable information. Um, yeah. I was going to ask Rafat, um, but, but Ali uh, and John, what do you know about the situation for um, pumped water right now? Are people able to get, you know, some of the fuel trucks that have been let in over the last week or so, um, they've apparently been going to some sort of like mostly UN facilities and infrastructure, but is there any way that people are able to get um, the water turned back on? Is that even, what, what do we know about that? Um, no, there's not been enough. There, um, there was an attempt to get one of the desalination plants just to give people pumped water in their house, like the salt water. Yeah. Um, so no, like Rifat said, the, the proportion of need compared to the amount of aid that's getting in is, um, it's not even close. It's not even um, beginning to, and, and it's not even the right things, like Rafat said. Uh, they need fuel. That's how you run the desalination plants and the pumping stations um, and the sanitation. Um, that, that's the thing that they need, and that's the thing that's being denied, um, the, uh, the ability to, um, to get the infrastructure even just working in the smallest way. But, of course, that's that's the point. The the point is to 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 like they said, like eradicate. Um, they want to eradicate uh, Hamas, and they're doing it by targeting civilians. That, and I'll I'll note and yeah. I'll note, John, uh, that uh, the the UN has stated, uh, and I quote: "This is from OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, in their latest update, uh, which was published last night." Despite the pause, there has been almost no improvement in the access of residents in the north to water as most of the main water production facilities remain shut down due to the lack of fuel and some also due to damages. Concerns about dehydration and waterborne diseases due to water consumption from unsafe sources persist. Um, they do report that... Uh, there is some slight uh, improvement in the distribution of uh, aid, including fuel for hospitals, water, and sanitation facilities in the area south of uh, Wadi, Gaza, Wadi Gaza, but um, the, the Gaza Valley, but uh, it's still slight. And as of this morning, uh, Dr. Ashraf al-Qidra, the uh, spokesperson from the uh, health ministry in Gaza said that there had not really been any significant improvement in the condition of the hospitals. And I've also seen people, you know, uh, that they that Al Jazeera is interviewing in Gaza because they have reporters on the ground there uh, saying that their access to water is still very bad, and the acts and the water that they're getting is often very salty. And the reason for that, uh, without going in too much background, is that 
Gaza has one aquifer that's an underground water source that because of overexploitation, by the way, including the aquifer, just if you're looking at a map of uh, Palestine or if you're looking at a map of Gaza, the underground flow of water in the aquifer is from east to west. What that means, so it, it, it flows from east, from inland, towards the Mediterranean Sea, and the, the, the water that is pumped out of the aquifer from wells is first pumped by the Israeli settlements that are now mostly vacant that are east of the Gaza Strip. So the Israelis draw out water first, and then Gaza can draw out water because that's the way the aquifer flows. So because of over-exploitation in recent years on the Israeli side, by the time the aquifer gets, the water is under Gaza, because the aquifer level is so low, you get seawater seeping in to the aquifer from the west, and the water in the aquifer becomes increasingly briny or salty. And you may wonder why I know so much about this. I'm not a hydrologist, but I wrote a research paper on the Gaza aquifer for a conference a couple of years ago. So I, I, I do have a, a lot of information about this. So the water sources that are coming up from the ground are increasingly briny and salty, which is why you need these desalination plants, which operate also on a local level. They have small desalination plants around Gaza, but they need fuel. And that's something they still don't have. Well, uh, as we try to get our good friend Rifat back, um, we are going to bring in another friend of ours, Dr. Tarek Lubani. He is based in Canada, um, but uh, he has years of experience working at uh, primarily Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Um, Tarek, thank you so much for returning uh, to the EI live stream. And thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to see you all. And uh, Ali, wow, your, your talk at the beginning was amazing. Thank you, Tarek. Good to see you. Um, you. Tarek, as a physician, um, what can you tell us about, uh, I mean, where do, where do we even start about the, the healthcare situation in Gaza, especially just with the, the basic fundamentals of not having uh, clean water? You know, for, for um, over two million people, you know, including people who are in dire need of uh, medical attention. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that, Nora. But before that, I want to mention just so that it's uh, top of mind and so that it's something that I say that many of my colleagues are under arrest, very likely being tortured and uh, trying to, with the Israelis, trying to get false confessions from them. Uh, when I was 22, I was arrested by the Israelis. I was a 22-year-old know-nothing who was of no importance at all. And I got the interrogation treatment. I got the torture. And so I can imagine what they're experiencing right now because the Israelis are so interested in generating whatever story uh, they want to come up with. So I, I think as we talk about the medical system, uh, we talk about the different pillars. Of course, water is an important one, but so are the people. And the people who make up the system, who have been betrayed by the world over in general, and more specifically by what the ICRC did by abandoning them to, to the Israelis in that exact moment, 
uh, I think we should just sort of take a moment and urge all of the, the viewers and listeners here to find out more about the people who were kidnapped, who were arrested, and to insist through whatever channels are available that they're released safely and in a timely way. And some of these physicians uh, are, uh, no, you know, close colleagues of yours, uh, including Mohammed uh, Abu Salmiya, the head of Al Shifa Hospital. Um, can you talk about what happened to him? And I believe he was uh, kidnapped and arrested with four other of his colleagues, including the head of a uh, hospital in Khan Yunus. Um, what yeah. What do we know about what happened? Yeah, at, at this point, I believe there are 13 people who have been arrested so far. Um, the, the two doctors, I guess three doctors who I know the best, um, one of them is Absalmiya, one of them is uh, Dr. Munir Shafiq, and then the other one was one of our residents. And obviously, you know, these are doctors who knew what they were getting into, in a sense, um, because it's been a long time since they've had to interact with Israelis who were willing to arrest them inside Gaza. I don't think any of them really expected, especially under the flag of the ICRC, for them to be subject to that kind of uh, arrest. I mean, Dr. Um, Abbasilmiya really is, is a classic example of how the Israeli system works. It took him in with no charges for no reason, it's keeping him with a very specific purpose, even if even if it finds him somehow to be not guilty, if it ever decides to charge him, he will have lost months of his life, you know, at the very least weeks, but probably months of his life. And all we can hope is that the maw of the uh, Israeli prison system doesn't catch these other doctors too much. But I was thinking about this, I was talking to one of my colleagues and thinking the same way in which all of us who have children sort of think like I would take any injury that my child would have. You know, for one of my residents, one of the people who I teach, who I've taught, who I've sort of like nursed in terms of his medical education, for him to be arrested, it is such a deep pain. Obviously, I'm not trying to center myself in that, but, you know, it's one of the things where I think all of us who teach him feel an obligation and feel our, feel our failure deeply. Um, and of course, the, the thing that is most, makes me most bitter about that is that I feel my failure deeply. And yet the ICRC does not. I see their statement. They definitely don't feel their failure deeply. And I don't see, uh, I don't see why. Tarek, uh, just to, to stay with, um, Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmiya, for example, and he's only one of a number of healthcare workers who have been abducted by Israel in recent days. Uh, Dr. Abu Salmiya is the director of the Al Shifa Hospital, which you know very well, and which Israel invaded and destroyed. And they are alleging that he is. Uh, and obviously, they didn't find anything. Not even the uh, Western media was persuaded by the uh, Israel's claims to have found tunnels or whatever it was, certainly nothing that lived up to the hype that Israel had been trailing of this uh, James Bond-like command center under Al-Shifa. And clearly there's no such thing because by now we would, we would have seen it. Um, but they, they are still claiming that he was somehow involved in what Israel calls terror. Of course, 
people will know that Israel considers like uh, looking at them wrong to be terror. Uh, they have already uh, defined major human rights organizations such as Al-Haq and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and Ad-Damir and so on as terrorist organizations. But what I want to say about Dr. Uh, Abu Salmi, and, and this is important, about what he may face now, I think that we have to think of the case of Muhammad Al-Halabi, who was the Gaza director of World Vision. World Vision is a major international Christian-based charity. It's a, you know, it serves everyone, but uh, that's where its roots are. That was funded by many governments, including the Australian government, its work in Gaza. And Israel abducted Mohammed al-Halabi uh, about seven years ago and uh, charged him with trumped-up charges of diverting millions of dollars uh, of World Vision's budget to, uh, to Hamas. Now, this was laughable at the time because World Vision, uh, including its, its uh, main uh, office in the United States and its Australian division, said it's impossible because our whole budget in Gaza didn't amount to a fraction of what uh, Israel claims was diverted. How could he have diverted $50 million, which is what Israel said, when the whole budget over a period of years was something like $2 million. Uh, but nonetheless, and, and the Australian government and World Vision did their own audits and their own investigations and said, there's no basis. This is Australia under a right-wing government, which is no friend of the Palestinians. And even they said, there's no basis for these Israeli charges. And uh, they, but they put Muhammad al-Halabi through six years of detention, uh, through uh, this show trial that went on for years and years and years, and finally found him guilty with a secret verdict, where they only published, uh, you know, snippets of the verdict. And even the the State Department and the British government and others, you know, true enemies of the Palestinian people said this is a show trial and this is nonsense. They didn't buy it. But Mohammed al-Halabi is in prison. He was sentenced to 12 years. I raise this case because this, I think, is the real danger that Dr. Abu Salmiya and the other medical workers and humanitarian workers face of these show trials by this regime that has abducted them and why I think it's so important that uh, we keep Dr. Uh, Abu Salmi and the other medical workers front and center, and that people uh, who are watching this live stream and who may watch it afterwards are also, in addition to continuing to contact their representatives about an immediate ceasefire, an immediate end to the siege, immediate accountability for the war criminals, that all these health workers be freed and that no credence be given to Israel's usual lies about them that are used to keep them in prison. Uh, it's, it's stunning how, um, how thoroughly consistent this is with uh, my experiences in uh, the other sort of country's dictatorship in Egypt, where I was accused of things including 
carrying 300 kilograms of weaponry and walking around with it. Like, I mean, I, I've been working out. I don't think I could carry 300 kilograms of weaponry and just chill around, uh, around the squares of Egypt. And yet these things are, are presented. Oh, the other one was Tahabur uh, Ma'ahamas, okay? But also Tahabur Ma'amusad. You know, and these, these charges are presented credibly by these systems because the systems don't care what the charges are. The systems only care with what the, 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 um, the sentence is going to be or what the story that they want to float is. And in this case, it's incredibly clear. I remember when I was first in jail, I used to say, you know what, let them try me and let's, let's work it out. But the system is corrupt even in that sense. There is no trial that can happen in Israel that would result in a, in a decision that is fair and just for these men. And so really what has to happen is enough political pressure to force the Israelis to release them. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that that happens. I guess the other possibility is that they could be considered as prisoners within the, the exchange deal. Uh, but I, I hope it doesn't even need to come to that because it's such a travesty that, that they've been taken. So thank you for, for letting me talk about it and thank you for amplifying that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, to, to kind of recenter focus on um, what physicians are having to deal with uh, right now, even as, you know, the, the bombs have uh, stopped falling for now. Um, but what what is the state of the healthcare system in Gaza right now, as, as far as you know, uh, as you've been talking to your colleagues there? So there, there's a mix. Obviously, it's terrible. Everything is terrible in this context. Like, I don't think we can say anything other than that. However, holy crap, are they doing amazing things. For example, they've clearly, I know that this happened as well in 2014, where there were committees that were struck that were making life and death decisions, you know, out of a philosophy ethics textbook about, you know, do we turn this off? Do we turn that off? How long do we let somebody live before we give that resource to somebody else. And here what they've decided to do is they've decided to um, turn on the things that help people without really follow-up. So what do I mean by that? You've noticed that they've started reactivating dialysis centers. Why? Why are they reactivating dialysis centers? Like, How does that make sense? Well, dialysis is interesting because you are going to die if you don't have it. You come in, you have it, and you go home, and there's no real follow-up other than the fact you need dialysis again. If they had instead reactivated the operating room for orthopedic surgeries, well, what does that look like? So essentially, you get a broken bone that needs surgery. Those are serious breaks. And then that seriously broken bone has to be healed, which requires uh, consumables, drugs, uh, sutures, um, gauze materials, cleaning things, so on. But then after that, you're not done. You need to keep that person in hospital for a period of a few days, maybe a few weeks. And then after that, you're still not done. You have to change the wounds, pack them. They might get infected, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they've really made a decision that I didn't even really know was on the table to, to support the maximum number of people with the minimum number of resources that are available to them. The other piece of it as well is that should the hospitals get bombed again, which is unfortunately a real possibility, 
these people aren't captive in the hospital, whereas when they do surgeries, they might turn people who could otherwise have been discharged into people who can't be discharged. So it's it's been, like, I, I think it's literally like a, a, a the worst exam question in an ethical bioethics class. Um, what do you do in these scenarios? And they've navigated it so admirably, so courageously. It's been really, really incredible. Mm. The system itself kind of depends on three big things. It depends on human resources. It depends on materials and disposables. And it depends on infrastructure and infrastructural support. And right now, all three of those things are missing. None of those three things is available, somewhat maybe a little bit in the south, definitely not in the north. And I think that's the problem we have to contend with. Derek, yesterday um, we published a, a story that I wrote uh, about the just gruesome and, and horrifying discovery of um, five Palestinian newborns uh, who on uh, November 10th uh, were be you know, up until November 10th were being cared for diligently and carefully by uh, physicians in the neonatal intensive care unit at Al Nasser Hospital uh, in Gaza City, and uh, as Israeli forces did with with many uh, hospitals and, and medical centers across Gaza in the last few weeks, they stormed the hospital. Uh, they ordered physicians, patients, and family members, and also um, people who displaced people who were taking shelter in the hospital, to leave um, at gunpoint, and the physicians you know, were not allowed to take these newborns uh, that need intensive care with them. Um, the Israeli army apparently told the physicians and the parents that the Red Cross would take care of them, um, but that failed to happen. And then on Tuesday, uh, a journalist uh, was uh, let back into the hospital 17 days later and saw that the infants um, had been left alone to die alone uh, with their intubation and intravenous lines still there attached to their uh, their tiny bodies. I, I mean, the 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 um, the footage here that you can see, obviously the the babies are are blurred out, um, but uh, I it, it just it, it's an unspeakable unspeakable uh, situation there. And um, I wrote about this um, and uh, and we were just talking on the phone yesterday, uh, you and I, about uh, just, um, just the horror of this situation and what, what's your reaction to what happened? Um, what does it say about the sadistic nature of Israel and and its accomplices that would let this happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really obvious here. You know, when we kind of look at such a terrible situation, we have to really take a moment and mourn the victims of October 7th and condemn Hamas for what they've done. You know, it's somewhat obscene to me that um, while these things are happening, we're constantly being sort of told that the Israeli army is doing 
something good here, that they're liberating people, that they're even honoring the memories of, of people who were, who were killed. It's such an absolute travesty uh, to see this happen. And for me, obviously, the thing that hurt me the most, having watched people die, I, I made a commitment to myself when I was pretty early on as a doctor that I would never let somebody die on my watch alone, that I would always be there holding their hand. Because death, as somebody dies, it's, um, there's almost always a kind of pain in their eyes, a kind of fear as they're going into something new, you know, the people who are aware of what's happening. And there's um, a comfort, maybe just for me, in holding the hand of somebody who's dying while they take their last breath, what we call the agonal breath. And as those agonal breaths pass, you know, you sit there and you watch their body go from something that was living, something that could give life, into something that is dying, something that no longer can. To the, these children weren't just robbed of their lives. They were robbed of any kind of dignified death. So were their families. Maybe these children would have died anyway. You know, some of them were probably sick. That's why they're in an intensive care. But they would have died with loving families. And I think that would have made all the difference in the world. But there was something else. There was another thought that hit me. You know, when you ask yourself the question, like, why? Why did this happen? Why? I'm not yet able personally to say that somebody took a decision to let those children die. I can't, I can't process that possibility, you know. Um, and so I want to, to think that, like, maybe it was an oversight. Maybe they forgot. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe a million things. But it's very but clear to Israel me. took a decision to, to let them die. It, in, in, an, in a very indirect way, I guess, but like I, I understand what you're saying, Ali. I can't personally imagine, I don't want, it's not that like my brain cannot process the, the possibility that a human being looked at five young children and said, fuck those kids, we're going to leave and let them die. I just can't process that right now. And that may very well be exactly what happened. But if I, if I can just sort of carry on the thought a little bit further, it struck me that had it not been for the work of all of these people, us and others, there would have been a death count of 39 higher. Because it's clear that the reason why this happened was because there wasn't enough international pressure on the Israelis, enough public relations pressure, etc. And it's also clear that had they had the same path, had they been able to abandon the 39 kids in Shifa, that most likely that would have happened too. Um, yeah, to me, that's, it's, a, it's a sobering reminder of our, uh, the mission that we have to make sure that we're protecting all of these patients while simultaneously you know, having to bring some accountability into the situation. Anyway, sorry, Ali, I had cut you off a little bit. Uh, no, not at all. I, 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 that's, but, uh, you know, the, the, I think the big, the big picture, I, I, I can uh, uh, 
understand exactly what you're saying. I think the big picture, though, is that the assault on the hospitals was deliberate, that Israel took the hospitals as targets and set up to systematically destroy them using these different pretexts and lies, sometimes not even bothering to give an excuse or a pretext. But, but uh, as John said, as part of their, their intent to systematically dismantle uh, the infrastructure, that, the civil infrastructure that, make, that makes Gaza livable. So that was the decision. And, uh, of course, we, th- this is a particularly horrifying that these babies were left um, to die alone uh, on top of it. But there, were, there have been many, many other patients who died who couldn't be evacuated from the hospitals or who uh, were um, unable to, to remain on life support or kidney dialysis. Several kidney dialysis patients uh, died. One slight piece of good news, of course, good news is all relative, is that they did manage to partially reopen the dialysis unit in Al-Shifa Hospital uh, in order to provide uh, dia- kidney dialysis to people who would, who would have died without it. Tarek, I'm curious what you're hearing about um, the ability of doctors to do things like that, to, to restore at least some of these life-saving services or just how difficult that is to do. One thing uh, nobody uh, needs to have known is that when I was a student, I had an administrative job in the nephrology section at the uh, University of Chicago Hospital. So I spent a lot of time around kidney doctors and patients. And one thing I know is that dialysis requires a lot of supplies, a lot of consumables, as well as the electricity for the machine. So they had said that that was only a partial and temporary opening, and it didn't sound like it was sustainable. Uh, It was just to provide a one-off dialysis for as many patients as they could. What What do you know about that, or what do you think they can do in a situation like that? Yeah, I'm not a nephrologist, so I haven't, um, I probably wouldn't even understand the full details of it. However, the broad strokes are pretty clear. Essentially, with dialysis, every time you get dialysis, it resets a counter. And the better the dialysis, the closer that counter resets to zero. And the closer it is to zero, the longer you have before you need dialysis again. At a baseline, Gaza is not able to provide adequate dialysis for all of the patients who are around, like at a baseline. The way that they uh, use the machines, the, what's called the flows, are inadequate, and that all has to do with the fact that they have to run these machines 24 hours a day, and so in order to do that successfully, they have to run them at, at suboptimal um, sort of settings. Similarly, just like you said, the consumables is another thing. So. Imagine, for example, the consumable, like what would be some, a good way to describe it to a non-medical uh, person? Think of the consumable like a tampon, okay? And so basically reusing consumables, which is happening right now, is like reusing tampons. And that, that is in the, um, 
in the cleanliness of it, in, in sort of all of the different factors, especially, by the way, when you don't have a safe place to go to and clean water to clean it with. And so they're being sent home with the consumables, the various filters and so on, or, or left with them so that they hold on to them, and then told, okay, come back and bring your consumable because we don't have another one to give you, we don't think. So it's, it's always been terrible. I mean, the dialysis patients were almost the first to die when the blockade started in 2006, 2007, 2005, that time period. Um, and we know that, that this is not going to be great. But I think what they're doing now is they're trying to buy those patients a little bit of time, maybe time to a ceasefire, maybe time until they get to Egypt, maybe time for whatever. But they know if they don't do this, all of those patients will die. Uh, Tarek, also uh, last weekend, the Palestinian, the Palestine Children's Relief Fund uh, held a webinar, and I mentioned this also in my piece that, that, that we published yesterday, um, where uh, NICU physicians were talking about the levels of um, hypoglycemia, sepsis, um, you know, dehydration, uh, malnutrition, that they're seeing in especially children, but in in kind of the the general population around Gaza, especially inside these shelters in UN facilities, um, where you know someone will come in with an injury, they'll treat the injury as best they can, but then without you know any antibiotics at all uh, left in the Gaza Strip, there's a, a high possibility that they'll develop sepsis and have to come back, and then it just kind of snowballs into this um, medical catastrophe. What can you say about these kind of, um, you know, th these other uh, factors when when we're talking about, um, you know, trying to treat regular wounds or broken bones or, uh, you know, shrapnel injuries uh, when there is the possibility of uh, sepsis and and other trans, you know, other infections and, and transmittable uh, Diseases running rampant. What, what does that What does that do uh, to people and, and the population? I mean, it's it's hard to really say this without sounding alarmist. But if things do not change quickly and drastically, it's hard to imagine that we won't see another twenty thousand deaths in the coming weeks. And that's not even to mention the long term disability and the long term problems like. From the Great March of Return, there was a significant number of people who became permanently disabled. And that was in the midst of a system that was almost completely primed to care for the people who are being affected. Now, never mind you, this system, where almost nobody is, has the capacity anymore to take care of these patients. So it's it really what you're talking about there, the hypoglycemia. Um, I think you, you might be referring to hypothermia, which was one of the main concerns, especially in younger children. Um, these are these are things that people suffer from already anyway. Children in Gaza die from hypothermia every year, remarkably, and that has a lot to do with the fact that you know there are lots of people who are in unsuitable living situations at a baseline. Now, how many more people are in unsuitable living situations? How many more of those people are going to die of hypothermia? How many more of those people are going to be put together? You know, and um, I think what you're talking about there was the incubator sharing, where 
uh, these children have a very high rate of complications if they get infections, so that's why you want to keep them kind of think boy in a bubble style. So by putting them together, if anything makes its way into that incubator, it's very likely to hurt or possibly kill not just one baby inside, but all the babies inside. So I think that when you put all of these together, really what, what we're seeing is uh, right now that we're on a precipice, we're about to fall, and it's going to be very fast and very bad when that fall does come. The Israelis are probably, um, they probably want that to happen. They very likely uh, seek that kind of an outcome. That's the only reasonable conclusion when one sees that medical supplies aren't making it to hospitals, when one sees that clean water is not available, and one sees that the very basic, the bottom parts of the hierarchy of needs just are not available. And, uh, Tariq, uh, we should point out that uh, just this week, the World Health Organization issued a warning at the highest level uh, that very soon, and this is presumably true whether or not the horrifying bombardment restarts, that the number of people dying from disease could soon outpace the number of people dying from Israeli bombardment, as you point out, not only the hospitals not functioning, but you have to add on top of that the uh, lack of water and sanitation for people who are confined in horrifying conditions, in, in shelters, in UN schools and refugee camps where they have no space, no privacy, where you don't have access to latrines, or the latrines that exist do not have um, running water or flushing water in order to keep them clean, in order for people to clean themselves. And uh, the sewage system has collapsed because of the uh, lack of fuel for pumping. And then in recent days, there have been heavy rains uh, which and winter cold, which by itself adds a huge amount of... Uh, hardship and stress to people who are already in a horrifying situation, but also increases the risk of contaminated water flooding through the streets and alleyways and homes. And at Rifat, I should mention, uh, just sent me an SMS a few moments ago to say he's fine, but unfortunately the power went out in the building he was in. So I don't think we'll be able to get him back today, sadly but we were very happy to see his face even for those few minutes. But one of the things that Rifat pointed out in some of his important reporting uh, in recent days from Gaza uh, on, his, on his Twitter account is how, how terrible it is when it rains. On the one hand, you think, well, rain water is something people can collect to relieve the shortage of water, and I'm certain people do collect it, but the rain also adds to the flooding, the shelters that people are in. They're in houses that have been damaged. Rifat talked about people who are living, a whole displaced family living in an abandoned store, and, but the, the, the rainwater flooded the store, and so, you know, kids are trying to just stay dry and above the water. So, in other words, it's not just the healthcare system that has collapsed. It's every aspect of life. And then you deal with 
the fact that people are malnourished so that their immune system and their ability to withstand disease uh, is presumably uh, also diminished. Particle, we've had these warnings from international officials now, as I mentioned, the World Health Organization, about the risk of epidemics. And we've had, for example, Giora Island, an Israeli general and official, or, or former official, but a, a senior figure in Israel, who has welcomed the prospect, openly, publicly welcomed the prospect of ec- epidemics among the population as a way to uh, help Israel win its war, whatever that means. But So we have these warnings about ec- epidemics and outbreaks already of dysentery and other uh, such diseases. But what, what does that look like, Tarek? What kinds of epidemics? How fast does this spread? I mean, it's horrible to even talk about, but we, as you said, this may be coming quickly. What can we expect? What will, what will it look like? And what is needed in order to stave this off and prevent it? Okay, so I guess a couple of pieces. The first is that the World Health Organization is hugely culpable in what's happening right now. They have options. They've always had options. They weren't even talking seriously about the problem until it was slapping them in the face. So I think the World Health Organization now throwing up their hands and being like, oh my goodness, look at this terrible tragedy that we're facing is so dishonest and disingenuous. And really, we we have to, I think, recognize that and start building um, something else that's alternative to that so that we're not counting on or depending on the World Health Organization. Very small example. The World Health Organization could link up with any number of countries, I'm sure Yemen would volunteer, and sail a ship into Gaza. And, and by just putting their flag on a ship, it would make it much, much, much less likely that the Israelis would do anything about it. Right now what they're doing, what generally the international community is doing, is they're saying, well, we can't do anything. The Israelis say no. The Egyptians say no. The ERC, the Egyptian Red Cross, uh, Red Crescent, says no. And so all of these people who knew better, it's not like these aren't intelligent people, they're very intelligent people. And to speak to them privately, they all know exactly what's happening. So why did they come to the party late? Why did they decide to only start talking about it when they truly could do nothing? I mean, it, it's, it's um, something that I think we have to hold them accountable for. Now, in terms of what the mechanics are, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'll do my best in terms of what I know about it. As far as I know, there's no cholera in Gaza, so we can all um, really, like, say, just thank God for that. Um, Cholera has been brought into places by people from outside, famously in Haiti, it was brought in by, by blue helmets. But cholera would be probably the worst thing that could happen right now in Gaza in terms of communicable diseases in this environment. Once you exit that, then really it's all of the other things that have to do with dirty water. You know, the regular old, uh, in quotation marks, like um, waterborne diseases. They're not good, but I mean, at least they're not cholera. The problem isn't the diseases. The diseases are actually not very hard to treat. They're not very dangerous in and of themselves. But I'll give you an example of a close friend of mine and a colleague who got sick. 
So she got sick. She calls me up and tells me her symptoms. And I'm like, okay, you have a waterborne disease. You need clean water and rest and good food. Where is she going to get that? You know, if she had clean water, then it wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. Then she wouldn't have been dealing with a waterborne illness in the first place. And so that's where she, she was at certain points. I thought maybe this woman is going to die because she couldn't get the things that she needed. The danger, therefore, lies not just in the current conditions that exist, but in their perpetuation. If we're able, right now, I'm entirely sure that a very large number of people have waterborne illnesses. I mean, the Ministry of Health is reporting, what, 70 or 80% have skin diseases that are related to poor sanitation and to communicable disease. So if that's the amount, that's the number that we're talking about with skin-borne diseases, then very likely the waterborne diseases are somewhat very close to that as well. I can just so, give you uh, th these numbers again from OCHA, the UN, uh, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They say that they've recorded, or the, the health authorities have recorded 111,000 cases of acute respiratory infections, 36,000 cases of diarrhea in children below five, and 24,000 cases of skin rash. But again, those are likely severe undercounts. But what what do, what do things like that mean in this context, Tarek? The the skin diseases and so on will create sort of people who are weaker, um, people who are less capable of fighting off other infections and other diseases, and also they're a harbinger of bad things. Once the waterborne diseases really kick in, then basically the cycle takes about one to two weeks, depending on the availability of water, of any kind of clean water. And if the person isn't able to kind of snap out of it by having enough clean water or being able to fight off the pathogens themselves, then they will either dehydrate because of too much diarrhea, or they will end up um, dying just because of the infection moving out. That, that's called sepsis. These, again, like you do not get sepsis from diarrhea in Canada because we have very basic treatments that allow that to happen. When it does happen, it's a catastrophe that's reported in the news, you know, when there are outbreaks of uh, E. coli or something like that. And these are the diseases that we're seeing. There's another class of diseases that basically didn't exist in Gaza until two months ago, which is fecal-oral transmission diseases. So basically... When you're drinking water that is so filthy, uh, we use the euphemism nitrated because, you know. Um, and so when you're drinking water that's so filthy, then there are certain pathogens that only can live in that particular cycle, certain kinds of uh, worms, diseases, etc. Even uh, a type of hepatitis that only really lives in, in that environment. And I saw this when I was in Iraq because there the severe shortage of clean water resulted in people hooking pumps into, into pipes and getting whatever water came out. And they in Iraq, they actually used to add cardamom to the water pot because the water used to smell so bad. I expect that it, it would be very similar in, in Gaza um, in the coming weeks if the situation doesn't significantly, significantly improve. But I think the other... My biggest question, I don't really know the answer to this, is what happens after the ceasefire? Because after the ceasefire, 
unless the Israelis are honest and unless the Israelis will allow things to happen that they haven't allowed so far, then we're not going to we're not going to be able to enter the medical teams, the medical resources, the medical supplies that are needed to very quickly try to turn the tide on these diseases. It's all uh, just so overwhelming and unbearable. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, we're going to obviously keep checking back in with you, Tarek Lubani. Um, and uh, not just about the, you know, the, the uh, unraveling healthcare situation, but about your colleagues who are being abducted and arrested and uh, quite possibly tortured by Israeli forces. Uh, that is Tarek Lubani. He is a Canada-based I, physician. Yes. Go sorry ahead. to interrupt, Nora. No. Can I ask Tarek one yeah. uh, final question? And it's a bit of a shift. But Tarek, we've had you, you had mentioned that you were detained in Egypt. This was in, tw- in 2013. You were detained for an extended period of time, uh, along with the filmmaker John Grayson. In fact, when you were en route to Gaza, trying to get to Gaza to, to do the kind of work you, you've been doing there. Um, and we, we've seen recently both Palestinians and Israelis being released from captivity or detention, and we've seen videos, a lot of discussion about this, including videos of Israelis uh, apparently being quite friendly, some of them, not all of them, quite friendly with the Hamas fighters when they're handing them over to the Red Cross. Uh, And we're going to talk about that in more detail with John, but I just wanted to get your reaction to some of this as someone who has unfortunately had this kind of experience. When you look at these videos, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians being released, what goes through your mind, having had the experience you did? Oh, you're muted, Tark. Um, A few things, and I can tell you this sort of as strictly personal experience that doesn't necessarily apply to other people. Um, I've never greeted my captors upon my release. And that includes a week ago when I was, or I guess two weeks ago now when I was in jail in Canada. Um, The people who jailed me were not my friend. I was not smiling around with them or chumming around with them. I did not feel any kinship with them or connection to them. And when I left, I was very happy to never see them again. In Egypt, it was slightly more complex in that I could understand where my captors were coming from. They were um, institutional monsters, um, while simultaneously, you know, I could see that they had personal lives that were separate from that institutional monstrosity. So, for example, the man who beat me and broke my ribs and um, hurt my kidney such that I was bleeding, uh, peeing blood for, for about two weeks afterwards, you know, there was a, a moment in time when the, there was a, I think it was a French citizen who ended up getting killed by the police while in custody. And for some reason, the French ambassador decided that he was going to make us his cause celebre for, to, to make the Egyptians pay for what they did to his, his uh, countrymen. And so at one o'clock in the morning, they came in to our jail cell and started asking us, 
um, about some things. John, of course, didn't speak any Arabic um, and didn't really speak French, so this I was speaking in Arabic to the captor, and I think this guy, I forget if I was speaking to him in French or in Arabic as well. And so I described exactly what happened, and the the Egyptian um, commander said, that's not true, you weren't beaten, you weren't hit, that would never happen. And so I turned to John and I said, in English, show them what they did to you. And he react, he acted out exactly what I told them. And it was clear there was no collaboration between the two of us. So they brought all of the people who could have beaten us, and they lined them up and they said, tell me who it was, and I'll take care of them. And, uh, you know, both John and I refused. I said, you know, I don't accuse any of these men, I accuse you because they are following orders. I said, well, then you're not letting me like hold anybody accountable. I said, well, you are accountable so long as we're in jail. So I, I think, you know, we kind of recognize that individually, everybody's accountable for their actions, but individually, these, these men could have been nice people, but institutionally, they were monstrous to us. Um, in Israel, it was very much the same. You know, I was tortured initially by a man who, like, it's been 20, 21 years now, uh, I guess 20 years, and I remember his name, Yaakov Golan. And uh, it was it was just, you know, he would, for example, play loud music at all times of the day. He would turn down the, the temperature in our cell. He would cut off the hot water. He wouldn't give us blankets. I mean, it was all of that. I only, I don't remember him fondly. He's not my Abu Monday. You know, I don't think about this guy except to curse him. You know, that's that's the context in, in which it is. Now, that's my personal experience, and that's all I can really speak to in terms of my captivity. What I would say is, let's wait a little bit and see what people say about their captivity. You know, when, when um, Shalit came out, the story of his captivity didn't really change over time. And it, it's pretty clear how he was treated. I think even now, how many years has it been? And John is probably the expert on this. It's pretty clear how he was treated. And I think, I hope that the, the Israeli uh, prisoners and detainees are treated well. Um, that's my expectation as a as a physician, that's my expectation as a Palestinian, that's my expectation as a human being. If they're not, I would want to hold them accountable. Um, but having said that, at least from my experience within the Palestinian system and within the way that Palestinians do this, I, I, I think it's very credible that uh, they've been treating the, the uh, detainees and prisoners um, humanely. Thank you, thank you, Tarek, for sharing that. I I know these experiences aren't always to talk to, easy to talk about, but your insight is invaluable. Yeah, as always. All right, Tarek, uh, we will come back to you uh, soon. Um, please, of course, keep us posted on your colleagues, um, and we'll have you back on the live stream very shortly. Thanks for all that you do, Tarek Lubani. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, so much, Thank you. 
Thanks. Um, and uh, before we go to our final segment uh, with John and Ali, we wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about something that Rifat was going to bring up uh, with us before the electricity cut out. Um, he, uh, as as I mentioned at the beginning, he's he's basically our de facto Gaza editor, um, and he has been responsible for bringing us and you all the viewers and, and readers to the Electronic Intifada, um, so many voices from Gaza uh, over the years um, and, and and especially right now. Um, and uh, Rifat has also been uh, posting about some of his students and, and colleagues and people that he worked with and helped edit uh, who contributed to the Electronic Intifada and uh, have been killed in Israeli airstrikes um and so he he sent us a few tweets that um that he was going to talk about uh before he was um before he we lost contact um so this is uh Rifat's tweet from yesterday i believe about his uh former student Mohammed Hamel uh who was he says murdered by by Israel the night before the temporary truce Mohammed contributed to the electronic intifada and was over the moon his piece was accepted and promised to work on more pieces he wanted to be a writer and pursue his higher education abroad Mohammed was active creative and supportive and intelligent rest in peace Mohammed your memory won't be forgotten um so that's from uh, that's from uh, Rifat, and this is Mohammed's uh, piece that he that we published just a, a few months ago um, about a photographer in Gaza who was captured and tortured by Israel. Um, we published that on uh, August 25th. Uh, if you get a chance, please go to the Electronic Intifada um, and search for Mohammed Hamo, H A M O. Uh, is how you spell his last name, and read uh, read his phenomenal piece that we were really honored to publish. Um, and it's still just so uh, I don't know. It, it 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 still doesn't make any sense, you know, that that we have these contributors who you know we are in touch with regularly, and and, um, and now they're gone. And this is now the third contributor yeah. that we have. Uh... Uh, seen murdered by Israel. There was Huda Al-Susi, yeah. a young woman, a wonderful writer who had contributed a number of pieces to us. Ra'ed Qaddura, uh, who, I, who was killed with many members of his family, who I had met in Malaysia. We talked about him when we had our friend Yusuf Al-Jamal on. And um, Muhammad uh, Hammo now, uh, yeah. who has been killed. And of course, uh, dear friend Ahmed Abortema, who was injured uh, when his home was bombed and his son and several other of his relatives were killed. So uh, that's four of our contributors that we know of who've either been killed or had close family members killed. And pretty much everyone in Gaza uh, has had <coughs> extended family and friends killed. Yeah. So it, it again that just underscores the scale of this genocide. It's really unimaginable, and and that also explains the intense uh, anxiety we all feel from hour to hour uh, 
and and how the truce of the past six days has been such a relief, first and foremost for people in Gaza, despite the fact that the the, the hardships are still far beyond anything most of us can ever imagine or comprehend. But yeah. still, for them, it's 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 an incredible relief. And so the idea of going back to the horror of the bombing, the indiscriminate Israeli bombing and shelling that, you know, could happen as soon as tomorrow morning for us uh, if the truce is not extended is just something that uh, is horrifying. And so I just, just want to say once again, you know, we cannot take the pressure off. We have to keep demanding the ceasefire permanent ceasefire, an end to the siege, and ultimately the only way out of this, which is justice and liberation for the Palestinian people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's get into the uh, military analysis portion of our live streams. Um, John, I know that you've been watching the prisoner exchanges very carefully um, during this uh, very delicate and uh, you know, tenuous uh, pause period. Um, what can you tell us about the nature of these exchanges so far, and uh, what what can we expect? Yeah, I mean that's really again hard to follow, uh, hard to hard act to follow when we're talking about those things. But I just think that anyone watching right now who's seen the display the scenes of uh, the palestinian children because it's overwhelmingly children some women uh, who are released um, and you compare the sort of sick inhumane depravity of what we're talking about about israel and then you care you you juxtapose that with these kids getting out of prison and coming out principled uh, defiant and just showing their humanity and I think one of the things that's important about these prisoner exchanges that is unprecedented is that um, normally when kids and and people come out of prison in Palestine they're actually not uh, gung-ho to tell everybody the story of their torture um, and and what they went through out of respect for the people who are still in prison. And we saw that in these releases as well. But because of the collective nature of these releases, it's given people the ability um, and the platform to actually talk about what happened to them just right away, just as uh, right off, um, you know, right off the cuff, just honest impressions. And the things that we've seen from these kids have all been, the stories are all the same. Nobody tells a different story. Um, the first day of the war, they took these kids who were already in isolation and they beat them. Look at the kids. We've seen footage of them coming out with broken arms and two black eyes, talking about two of them sharing one plate of food. Look at that kid is just wearing his prison uniform. Israel just basically threw them out in their uh, in their prison uniforms, didn't give them their clothes, um, didn't give an opportunity for their families to bring them anything. Um, they were given no notice that they were being released. And these kids are talking about how they don't even know what's going on in Gaza. They have complete deprivation. There's no electronic anything. There's no newspapers. They're not visiting with their family. They're not seeing their lawyers. 
Um, they have no idea what's going on in Gaza. They're in basic solitary confinement or sometimes with two or three others. Um, but there's no collective space. There's no yard time like in a prison. Um, they're not being fed properly. And they're being beaten. And the first day of the war, Israel showed its humanity by going in and being mad about what happened in the south where their military collapsed and abandoned their people for an entire day. And those same forces decide that the way to uh, even the score is to take a 14-year-old kid and beat him up until you break his arm in solitary confinement, where four or five soldiers pour into their uh, cell and beat them and beat them up without any, these people haven't been charged. They're getting tortured with no idea what the evidence held against them is. And when you're watching this boy speak right now, he was told before, everybody was, before they were released, that if you speak to the media, we'll re-arrest you, we'll arrest your sister, we'll arrest your mother, um, all kinds of these threats. And they get off the bus and walk right up to the media um, because they're principled, because they're humane um, and because they're speaking for their uh, national objectives that are um, principled. And even like the 14-year-old uh, who, who got out yesterday, I mean, they all do it. Um, he, he says that, you know, I'm happy, we're happy that we're free, but our happiness is incomplete um, because of the people who are, you know, this kid's 14 years old. Uh, because of the, the people killed um, and wounded and missing under the piles of rubble in Gaza. Um, and I just, if anyone is watching this that hasn't watched the releases happen, um, they happen after dark in Palestine, um, around um, the, the late evening, um, and, and just watch it. It's an unbelievable thing to see after following and being um, involved and in, in being on the streets with these kids for many, many years um, and, and watching um, what, what the toll that it, uh, the danger of their resistance. Um, it's just, to me, it's been incredible. And um, it's such an extraordinary moment that um, comes with such brutality and depravity, but um, these scenes that we're seeing are, uh, yeah, they're, they're just yeah. incredible. And um, to be able to see it on mass like this and um, just hope it continues. Um, yeah. one, one unintended consequence, I think, John, of these releases is that uh, we've been getting all these interviews in Arabic media, not just Al Jazeera, but uh, a lot of local Palestinian media as well, interviews with the released people who have been released from Israeli captivity. And the stories they tell are horrific and consistent. And as you pointed out, they are incommunicado. They are in separate prison prisons cut off from one another and cut off from the outside world. As most of them are saying, we had no idea there was a war in Gaza till, till we got out. Uh, so that, so, so what I want to say is we've, I don't remember, I mean, because prisoners are released all the time. I mean, in, people are going in and out of the Israeli prisons. So you'll get one or two people released now and then. 
But the effect of this mass release and the fact that we have these many, many interviews all within a concentrated time, I think is giving a new sense of the scale of the suffering of the Palestinian prisoners. This was already a very, uh, you know, at the top of the list of priorities for Palestinians, but I think it's just really highlighted in a way nothing else has, at least for uh, Palestinian and Arabic-speaking audiences, the, the, the urgency of freeing the 7,500 or 7,000 plus people who are currently in prison, and Israel's arresting people all the time. And it just strikes me, too, that people who... Welcome back, and uh, that was Electronic Intifada, day 55 of the siege of Gaza uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces, backed up by uh, the United States government. And that's going to uh, conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast for uh, Saturday, December 2nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our program uh, today uh, with the music of uh, the legendary John Coltrane. And, of course, uh, John Coltrane, a citizen of the world uh, during uh, the last century. Uh, His legacy lives on. And uh, we're going to listen to John Coltrane along with Duke Ellington. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.